0: Welcome to the Self Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? My name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, we're super glad you're visiting, and we hope you get to say hi uh, later. We're in a series on Acts, I'm going to read a passage in a second. This week uh, was an interesting week for the Walton family, because we ended up with a child in ER. And if you're thinking, hey, wait, these are the notes from last week, because that happened last week, which it did. It happened again this week, so we were like, Wow. Some kind of like thing going on with a house or something. It's turned against us for looking after it less well than the former owners did because just that's how we roll. Um, and, and fortunately, the good news is we now no longer have any children left to get sick. Like they're all been sick, and hopefully now that means that's the end of it. The ER visits are done. We've had three in like the last two months, um, and so I could do with no more. Thank you. Uh, so we're in the series on Acts. This is chapter six. When do we read it? you might say why pick this passage on the surface it seems like a really kind of boring administrative passage it's not one that jumps out at the page here we go in those days when the number of disciples was increasing the Hellenistic Jews I'll explain that in a little while among them complained against the Hebraic Jews I'll explain that in a little while, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Perimenus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let us pray together. God, as we open this passage, may you speak to your people. We're on all sorts of different points in a journey. Some of us would say you are a mystery and we're not even sure what it looks like to walk with you. Some of us would say you are still a mystery even though we're trying to walk with you. Wherever we are on that journey, God, would you nudge us along? Would you speak to us? As a community, those that call South home, as individuals, would we have the bravery to say, God, speak, even when that might be painful and ask difficult things of us? So as we wrestle with this text, speak to us. Amen. Okay, so in a book, series on this book called Acts, Acts is written by a guy called Luke, very intelligent guy, probably a doctor of some kind. He has researched the story of Jesus very closely, and he's written a book that he called Luke, or at least we call Luke. He probably didn't call it Luke. That's nowhere in the text. This book, Luke, could be called Luke Part 1. And then we have Acts, which could reasonably be called Luke Part 2. Two, the first is what Jesus did. The second is what his followers did. But those followers would say they only do what they do. And Acts is full of miraculous, spectacular, supernatural events. They only do what they do because it is a partnership, God and man. This isn't about them doing the things, this is about them doing the things that God inspires them to do. It is a partnership and so we've wrestled with some parts of these texts. Last week we read a passage in Acts chapter 4 that seems positively idyllic. So I asked you as a community or as individuals, what do you think of when you hear the word Idyllic. Maybe it's pictures like this from the Amalfi Coast, this place that I've longed to go to for years. Maybe it's a place. Maybe it's like this house of Elrond half-elven in the Lord of the Rings, a house that was said to be good, whether you liked reading or telling stories or just sitting and eating or maybe a mixture of all three, just to be there was restful and peaceful. Maybe it's the picture of a community that you've either known or still know. We see these communities are television that are probably a little bit too idyllic a little bit too good to be true six impossibly good-looking people living together in deep friendship it just doesn't seem real does it and yet that's the presentation we get on tv all the time these types of things are normal and so wherever you've seen that kind of idyllic sort of community This is what we see in Acts chapter 4. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Think about that for a second. Wherever you are on the faith journey, however you feel about Jesus, however you feel about the divine, you might say this, I would love to live in a place where there were no hungry people. I would love to see that kind of provision. That itself seems kind of compelling. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That is a kind of community that we might say, I can get on board with that. That feels like that's how the world should operate Surely, this community, to use a delightful word, is delightful. It's this picture of what we would long for a community to be. But last week, we wrestled with this question, what happens when delightful becomes frightful? What happens when there's that moment of shift? Think about every sort of horror or thriller movie you may have seen. Maybe you don't watch them, but maybe you have seen some. And think about that moment of the start of Jaws that starts with a a midnight swim and everything just seems perfect. And then there's the first couple of notes of that sound that we all know now. And we know that something is about to happen. And the movie turns very dark from that moment. It's also solely the reason my wife won't go swimming in the ocean. Just that movie was enough to finish a desire to swim off there's that moment of switch from this is nice this is innocuous or even perfect idyllic delightful and then there's the switch in movies to something different and we see the potential for this switch in the passage we looked at last week in Acts chapter 5 there was this moment of tension in the community in amongst generosity two people appear that are trying to manipulate the community and there's this moment of supernatural judgment where we read that they dropped dead in the middle of a service or gathering not unlike this and you may say I'm not sure I can believe in those kind of things but the text just takes it and says no this happened doesn't say it happened all the time doesn't try and defend the supernaturalness of it just says in this moment this community was at risk and it seems that God stepped in and acted to protect it in Acts chapter 5 we see God steps in to protect this new community this community is pure that is pure and beautiful it is protected in this one moment of divine action. And we're left with a question, is that how it's always going to work? Is it always going to have these moments where a God who is invisible and mysterious becomes an agent in the world and actively acts to stop something happening or to protect the community? We're left waiting to see and, and we're going to skip most of chapter 5 sadly, but I'm going to drop in on just one bit because I think it just highlights what it is to wait to see what God is doing, to ask good questions, whether you're a person of faith or a person of no faith whatsoever. This is a character called Gamaliel who just appears very briefly, a Pharisee who usually get a bad rep, usually presented as somewhat of the bad guys. A Pharisee named Gamaliel is a teacher of the law who was honoured by all the people. He stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men, the apostles that have been arrested, these early followers of Jesus, be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. There's this moment where a religious leader says, I'm just waiting to see. He's hopeful, maybe even expectant that God will do a new thing in this first century community. He hasn't decided yet. But whereas we see some of the other religious leaders have already decided, we don't want change. We want everything to stay as it is. This guy's like, I want to see. And if God is behind it, I am ready to jump on board. And if he's not, the thing is going to disappear anyway. And 2,000 years later, this church worldwide is still functioning, still there, still existing. There's this moment where Gamaliel paints this picture of what it is to ask a good question. Is God in this? In this new thing, is he working in some way? And so now we move to chapter 6. And we get to ask the question again what happens when delightful becomes frightful? What happens when there's this potential moment where a community is damaged, where it becomes fractured, where it's not what it's supposed to be? Will God act supernaturally to protect it again? Or will something different take place? Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Remember, we just said this community is a place where everybody has enough. Nobody goes without. And now there are some people that are going without There's a group called the Hellenistic Jews, a group called the Hebraic Jews. So helpful in understanding this, the Hebraic Jews, primarily a group of Jewish people that lived in Jerusalem, that stayed in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. They were the locals, if you like. And then another group, the Hellenistic Jews, that for the most part came from all over the place. For those of you that have been travelling this act series for a while, you remember maybe back in chapter 2, it says all of these different people speaking different languages from all over the place had gathered together. And there's this moment where the church grows dramatically by about 3,000 people. We're told people had come from Arabia, people had come from as far away as Rome, which was days and days of journey. They'd gathered together, and had this moment where something spectacular had happened and they just stayed. They stayed in this community, but they are different. Maybe the best way to understand this idea of diaspora, what it is to move away from your own culture and homeland is to think about the beautiful state of Colorado. Just as a survey, how many of you guys are natives in the house today? How many natives do we have? We got maybe, oh man, I'm going to say while it was higher in the first service, I'm saying that's like four percent. That's a very accurate number. I I have no no reason for believing it's 4%. Most of you and myself, we come from out of state. We are not locals to this area. So we move to Colorado and what happens? Changes begin to take place just inherent to being in this area. Suddenly people do ridiculous things like riding two-wheeled devices up mountains. This is a very bad picture of me at the front in the white shirt. You put the slowest guy at the front so you know how to keep pace. And uh, and so this is me adventuring into the world of mountain biking. I, I was miserable for the entire time except when we were going downhill, which I discovered was less time that we spent going uphill. Um, So just in terms of the odds, I'm like, man, the odds are not in my favour in this respect. Most of it misery, occasional moments of joy, but I got through it. And and so you move to Colorado and you do things like this. You suddenly start waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning and you invite me for breakfast at 6 o'clock in the morning. Looking at you, Tom Walker. And and I never want to get breakfast at 6 o'clock in the morning, just so you know. Uh, I like to get breakfast between 8 and 10, with the emphasis on 10, that's just my clock. Uh, So something changes, right, as you move to a different place. Now that's Colorado. You've moved from maybe a different state in America. The, the change is perhaps significant, perhaps incidental. You go back to those places you come from and you annoy your family or friends by telling them about 300 days of sunshine and how beautiful the mountains are in the summer and the winter and the fall and the spring. There's a change, but it's not, it's not life-changing. Think about what diaspora looks like moving from a different nation, and some of you have done that. Think about what it is for large numbers of Italians to move to America over the past couple of hundred years. Think about what it is for large numbers of Indian populations to move to Britain over the last couple of hundred years. Think about what that looks like and the changes that take place. you put into a completely different culture and it begins to change you. And, and maybe you don't change in a huge amount, but your kids start to change more. And their kids change even more to the point that maybe two, three generations in, you go back and you don't even speak the same language. Maybe it's just a secondary or tertiary language now. The old ways, the different culture is now almost foreign to you. You are shaped as much by the culture you are in as, the, as much as the culture you are from. And think what it is for some of these first century early followers of Jesus that we've just read about to leave Jerusalem maybe two, three generations of family ago. And now to be in a place like Rome, the center of the world right now, this place that's culturally just miles ahead of Jerusalem. And then what it is to come back to Jerusalem. There's potential that there is huge difference now. And yet for these group labeled the Hebraic Jews, well, to them, they are the faithful. They're the ones that stayed. They didn't leave with everybody else. They stayed in the homeland. Even when things were bad, They stayed. And so this is the tension that we're reading about. This is entirely now about ethnicity. This is two groups of people that don't see eye to eye. They have the same religion. They have made the same move to follow Jesus. But in so many ways, they are now so, so different. And we see what it is for one group that has power, that is in its own locale, its own safe space. They are the the ones in residence to mistreat this whole group that sits on the fringes. This conversation is entirely about power, entirely about ethnicity, and yet, in amongst this, a group of Jesus followers are those brave enough to remain whilst also speaking truth to a community falling short of the way of Jesus. These early followers of Jesus have seen how he lives in the world, they have seen how he treats those on the margins, and they are willing to say, this isn't how it's supposed to work, friends. Jesus was incredible in providing space for those that didn't belong, that didn't fit, and pulling them into the center. And this group of people are brave enough to stand up and say, this isn't operating the way that Jesus would have it operate. This group that does not have power speaks this truth to those that do have power. What I love about them specifically is this word remain. Would they be entitled to just leave? Absolutely. Absolutely. Would they be titled to say, the people that you're supposed to be caring for, the widows, the orphans, when they're in our group, you don't care about them. When they're in your group, you care. We're done. This thing clearly isn't what it was professed to be. This is falling short of who Jesus was. And and there's every potential that they say, no, we're out. But they remain. They are willing to fight for this community. They believe in this community, but at huge risk to themselves. They stand up and say, this community is not functioning as it's supposed to function and maybe you've experienced that at some point in your in your life maybe you're a church person who has been hurt by a church community and it still resonates somewhere in the back it still gives you those moments of wow that was painful definitely wasn't all it was supposed to be and maybe you tried to speak up tried to voice the need tried to voice the way that the community was failing and you weren't listened to Maybe you've done it in a group of friends, maybe you've done it in a family, maybe you've experienced what it is to be in a community and say this isn't functioning as a real community is supposed to function. And that's difficult when it's family and friends, but it's potentially even more heartbreaking when it's a church. Because in a church it feels like we should all be on the same page right this thing is supposed to operate different. This thing is supposed to reflect who Jesus was. And we see Jesus as though that, the one who brings in the outsider, who protects the vulnerable. And what is it to be in a church community and say, I didn't see that happen. All I saw was brokenness. All I saw was damage. And yet at the same time, look at the next passage. It's fascinating, right? So the 12 gathered all the disciples together. The truth is these people leading the community, it seems, weren't even aware of it. They didn't even know. They they designed this thing or helped design this thing to to be beautiful, to be wonderful. And how many church leaders have I heard say that? We helped create this thing because it was supposed to give life. It was supposed to be different. It was supposed to not be painful. And yet it fell short because we're human and we're broken. It, It seems like for these earliest followers of Jesus, the thing was supposed to be functioning and they didn't know that it wasn't functioning. And it took people to come to them and say, this is a thing that we need to fix. This is a thing that you need to address. Seems at the heart, these are guys that want this thing to function well. And in this moment, they're left with a choice. There's a couple of questions this church has to answer. Is it in the business of social justice or not? Now, depending on your political persuasion, the word social justice may give you a little bit of, I don't know if I like that word. It has different connotations. and I'm not really interested in the politics of it. I'm asking the question from the beginning, from its essence, was the church interested in caring for those that could not care for themselves? Was it interested or was it not interested? This is the moment they have to decide that. Do we pursue these things or do we just let it be what it will be? Do we just leave people to provide for themselves or is the church an instrument of care? And then second question they have to answer is this. And if it is, who makes that happen? Who does the stuff? Is it these 12 guys that we see mentioned here? Do they make everything work? Does everything tick around them? In in essence, in the the first century world, they are the paid staff. They are the ones that are employed. They are the ones that are there 40 to 50 to 60 hours a week. And do do they make it happen? Is that how church works best when paid people do things? What do you think? I don't know. Well, maybe I do. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to change track for a second. I'm going to ask you a question that might seem that it's unrelated, but it's deeply related. Think about your home life for a second. What do you, if you're a homeowner, do you choose to outsource? What do you take and say, I don't want to do that thing? Depending on your skill set, depending on who you are, there's a whole bunch of different answers. I have one friend who was in the first service who very confidently told me, my job is to earn as much money as I can so I have to do nothing in the house, so I can pay somebody else to do everything. And some of you will be like, yes, I am that person and unashamed about it. Some of you are so skilled and so knowledgeable, you can do everything. My father is that person. I'm sure he's somewhere deeply embarrassed about his son who has no discernible skills in manual labour, but he can fix anything. He just has that ability where he picked the knowledge up I don't know because he didn't even have YouTube but somewhere he got that knowledge somewhere he has made this thing work depending on who you are you may say I do some stuff I do no stuff you may dislike what you have outsourced you may love what you have outsourced you may live the dream of my friend who says one day I will do nothing in the house and it will be wonderful if you are looking for advice apparently this is what I've been told the first thing you should outsource when you have enough money is your lawn care Apparently, it's, if you're not good at it, it takes you a long time and you do it very badly. Uh, and you can pay someone a moderate amount of money to come in and do all of it for you. But regardless, we make decisions about our home on some kind of equation. I would say we are used to equation-based decisions on outsourcing in the home. And it looks something like this. Whether you realize you're processing it like this or not, somewhere you're asking, how long is this going to take? And that obviously is determined by how good you are, how skilled you are, and what kind of task you're doing. So you kind of measure that, you say, how long will this take me? And then you times that by, well, how much is my time worth? What else could I do with this time? Would that be more valuable? Could I earn more money? Could I build my business in that time? Could I do any of those things? And then maybe you ask yourself, well, what can I afford as well? Like what makes sense for us financially? And all of that, as you multiply it up, you then divide it by what is my interest in this task? Do I like doing it? Do I not like doing it? I tried finishing a basement in a house we had in New York and it took me about three months because I'm terrible. I just watched YouTube videos to survive and then the basement flooded and the insurance paid to put a brand new basement in which was win-win I felt for everyone except potentially the insurance company. We do these sums in our head and say, what do we take and what don't we want to do anymore what do we want somebody else to do and society is set up to push many of us constantly in that direction I was just cleaning out the hot tub that we inherited and I didn't think it need, needed cleaning and then I looked and it definitely did some of you that looks terrifying too very unclean um, definitely mold growing in different places as I watched this YouTube video I was constantly told by the person doing the video if you don't want to do this you can pay us to do it for you They must have said it five or six times. If you don't want to do this, someone can do it for you. Just pay us a fee, we'll come clean it. We will take care of it. We are constantly pushed in this direction of outsourcing and that, my friends, is fine, except in a Jesus community. Outsourcing, which works so well in so many arenas of life, is toxic in a Jesus community. If our model of Jesus-centered community is we can just pay more people to do stuff, then ultimately the thing doesn't look like the thing it was created to be. If this Acts community wrestles with this to the point where they say, do you know what, we're just gonna take those apostles, those first 12 guys who are somewhat paid at this point, and they're just gonna do everything and we're gonna do nothing, then the thing isn't what it's supposed to be. I sketched out for you a couple of weeks ago these five things that I think make a a Jesus-centered community thrive. The community is supposed to be about hospitality. Who will you invite in? It's supposed to be about that connection piece. It's supposed to be about solidarity. You should be lifting people up. I should be helping lift people up. It's supposed to be about mutuality. You get to play a part. It's not all done for you. It's not all done for me. It's about humility. Who can you listen to? How can you learn from somebody else? And and it's about generosity. What can you bring? Those five principles all matter in Acts and they all matter for South and any church today. And yet there is a tension between principle three and principle five. You may not be aware of it's attention, but it's lurked in the church world for years. We have said that generosity, giving money, is an excuse to not do stuff. And you can see this all over the world, all over the Western world, in how our church budgets operate. We just say, how do we show we're interested in something? Well, we just give more money to it. We have a missions budget and we'll give more and more stuff, an outreach budget and we'll give more and more money and yet that can mean that less and less people actually get involved in doing it. We say we'll hire more and more staff and I love our staff and want them all to stay and i also like you to keep paying me if you don't mind as well but there is this tension between hiring more and more staff and so there's less and less room for volunteers to operate and many of you that have been in the church world for a while just think about how that has worked. You may have seen the ways that at one point we had a team of volunteers that would clean the toilets after the service and slowly over time, you move to a system where you pay people to come in and clean the toilets. We constantly learn to outsource what our church does. And I'm not saying that that's all negative, but I'm saying it's definitely a tension to be managed. If we get to a point where any of us get to say, do you know what, I give some money to the church, so I don't need to serve in the church, we may be missing out on something. Yes, giving is important and Steve just came up, I don't want to negate what he just said about talking about the importance of a giving community and yet giving can't come at the expense of that mutuality. If we learn just to outsource more and more stuff, to pay more and more people to do things, uh, the cost of us actually being involved I don't know if this community represents the acts community very well at all let's see how this community deals with this struggle where something needs to be done and they could just leave it to those early followers of Jesus or they could find a better way so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables you could have a discussion about how derogatory that wait on tables feels on one hand in the first century people didn't love, service. You had servants to serve. You didn't do it yourself. That could be a somewhat demeaning role. And yet, on the other hand, they had Jesus as a model and Jesus was constantly taking a position of a servant. Whether it's derogatory or not, it continues, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility to over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. When given a choice, do we, the paid people, just keep doing more stuff? Or do we find other ways to get other people involved? This community says there is something for more people to do here. We're gonna pull more people into what God is doing. And they pick specific people. People known to be the full of the Spirit. If that language is unfamiliar to you, you might say people that are in tune with what God is doing. And then people that have this characteristic wisdom as well. So you're familiar with wisdom. You may even be familiar with the Greek word wisdom. It's actually one of the fairly well-known ones. In the original language, it would use the word Sophia. But Sophia comes from this other root that really kind of means clarity. You might say that they choose people that see things clearly there are these apostles these first 12 guys that are maybe the visionaries they're maybe the ones doing the teaching the praying all of those big picture things and and yet they pull in these people that see clearly and to understand how that operates I'd like to show you a picture a picture that will give some of you a little bit of sort of OCD this is my garage It's chaos, I don't, I don't even know what's going on there. There's cupboards that are just wide open. There's, the only thing that I care about clearly is the ski stuff because that's well organized at the back but everything else is just a hive, a mess. There is a white sofa with bikes leaning up against it which doesn't seem like a recipe for success. So there is my garage and then there is other people's garage. <laughs> there is my garage. And my neighbor's garage, there is my garage and maybe your garage. There is these two things and one is not like the other thing, right? They don't (laughs) look the same. And I just don't operate in a way that enables me to make my thing look like this thing it just doesn't work for me and yet some of you do you know where your passports are and you always have jumper cables ready to go and you're that person that in a parking lot will say oh I can definitely help you and I'm the person that says I would love to help you but my jumper cables I don't even know where they are um and and so different skill sets right and yet it seems like these early followers of Jesus pull in people who can do this to help alongside people who Can do this they pull in people who can do this alongside people who can do this they pull in people that help manage the chaos one of the first ministry jobs I ever had I had an assistant who came alongside me and she spoke very very much spoke truth to me truth that I didn't particularly want to hear she said this to me every time you talk about admin you talk about it in a derogatory way You talk about it as though it doesn't matter, that we could live without it. And she said, what I think is this. You say things like that because you're not good at it. And if it's important, you think you have to be good at it. And then she said, but the reason that we get to function well is because I do what I do well. And that lets you do what you do well and the whole system thrives. And it was a painful truth to hear, and she was definitely right. I mean, she was wrong about everything else, but she was definitely (laughs) right about this thing. There was this learning curve of, I actually am not designed to do everything because when I do things, it looks like this, and other people take this and turn it into this. Some of you are like, I'd love to come and clean your garage for you, and you can if you want, I have no problem with that. Any volunteers? No one? No takers? <laughs> Done it. I was really expecting that to work. Uh, there is a need for more of this. And that's what these seven guys come in and do. They find a role to play that the original 12 cannot, it seems, do. They do not have the capacity and perhaps don't have the skill set anyway. It seems that early on this church realised that it worked best when there were lots of people doing lots of different roles. And yet we so often push people out onto the peripheries and concentrate everything in just a few people who become increasingly overworked and increasingly overstressed this is also affected by how we work with age and so some of you would say I don't know that the church has a role for me anymore because I'm over a certain number perhaps that number is 60 and and yet we've kind of adopted this society where we've said something in many places like this just at the time where you have the most wisdom the most free time and the most money we're going to send you off to Florida or something like that and you'll live there or Arizona or wherever or go up to a mountain place and stay there just at the time when actually the church needs you the most this church thing has never supposed it's never ideally been about age it's always been about having space for everybody to get involved whether they are these people Or these people, this early church in asking this question, are we in the business of social justice says emphatically yes, but not just by paying people to take care of it. And let me say this. One of the things I love about South is the way that we tap into some of these things. To see 40 or so of you at a training on how to help care for Afghan refugees just warmed my soul. and I'm so grateful for the team, Jody, Dan, and others that helped put that together. Um, Hannah, everybody. I mean, I could mention names, but I just, I just run out of names. I, there's so many people involved. I, I loved seeing 200 people here to talk about homelessness this week. There is just something about South that says we long to do those things, but there is always room for for more to get involved, and you have gifts that are needed. This isn't about staff, this is about community doing it together. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip of Prochorus, Nicanor and Timon and Paramenus and Nicholas of Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And then there's this delightful little connecting word, "so," uh, that just really ties those two clauses together. The church grew because... It was structured like this. It seems like when the church is operating as it should, it becomes compelling. To the world around it, including to this little group here, the priests. Finally, this is this moment where these older Jewish religious leaders start to jump in en masse. They suddenly start to say, there is something about this community that makes sense. Think about it from their perspective for a second. This is an old passage in Deuteronomy, and maybe they grew up reading this. If anyone is poor among you for your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard hearted or tight fisted towards them, rather open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need generously give to them and do so without a grudging heart then because of this the lord your god will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to they may have read or they would have read passages like this and yet every single prophet in the old testament wrestled with the community isn't what it should be spoke directly to those in power and said you need to fix this so imagine what it felt like for a priest to see a community that said you know what they're doing it they're making it happen. There are no hungry people. And when problems arise, they deal with it well. For this group of priests, this moment where they're like, this is the community we've been promised. And this is the moment they jump in when the church functions as it should be. It was compelling in the first century. And I would suggest is still compelling in the 21st century. And this works because some chose to wait at tables. Whether that was demeaning or not, they chose to wait at tables. And we don't have time to pick out all the stories that come out of these seven, but there is one story that I'd love to look at just for a little while. One character mentioned called Philip who begins waiting on a table, begins in this position that could be seen as demeaning, and then goes on to do this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki. If you don't have a definition for eunuch, I'm just going to leave you to work Google and the internet machine and all those things. And, uh, and you can get one. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book Of Isaiah the prophet this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship this man had driven in a chariot hundreds of miles to worship but how had he been received there what had happened when he got there there's a passage back in Deuteronomy that would have been important to the religious leaders that says this no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord There's every potential that this man drove hundreds of miles, only to be rejected, only to be told he didn't fit, only to be told he didn't belong. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. What is that good news? Is it that you go to heaven when you die? Maybe, yes, not just that. Is it that you get to have your sins forgiven? Yes, it is, but not just that. What is that good news for this eunuch? it says that Philip starts in Isaiah 53 this passage he reads and then starting from there he began to explain all the rest of the scriptures and I would love to believe that in his providence God had him start with Isaiah 53 and continue reading because as you start with Isaiah 53 you keep reading and you come across this passage in Isaiah 56 let no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will utterly exclude me from his people and let the eunuch not say I am but a dry tree for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, who hold fast to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. I would love to believe that Philip, in his journey with this man, led him to believe that not just he was promised heaven when he died or that he could have his sins forgiven, but also that he who was an outsider was included, that he was on the margins was brought in close. This moment in Acts chapter 6 is a moment where the church says, are we interested in social justice or not? Are we interested in those that are on the margins or not? Or is this just about gathering together and feeling good as we sing songs? There is this moment where they wrestle with this question and people like Philip, who start off waiting on tables, end up doing things like this as God moves them. Philip changes this man's narrative. Out of nowhere, this man's life will be different. And then there's this joyful moment where it says, uh, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water, what can stand in the way of me being baptised? He jumps into this new community and we are doing a baptism service on November 14th. If you would like to be baptised and you haven't been, we would love to baptise you. You can contact Dan who deals with all things in that manner at dan dan.southfellowship.org. He would love to help with the administration of that task because Dan is very administrative. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. This man doesn't stay there on the desert road. He goes back to his communities. And this Jesus message begins to spread all over the place as people like Philip wait on tables and become obedient to what God is calling them to do. This community spreads because some chose to wait at tables, but they didn't stop there. I don't know where you serve and how you feel called to serve. I don't know if it's become a point of tension that you don't feel like it fits anymore. I don't even know what you're supposed to do, but I know if South is your home, you're made to do something. You're made to bring what gifts you have and use them in this community just as I am. As this Acts community wrestles with this idea of, is it just the paid people or is it everybody? Their definitive answer was, oh no, this thing is about everybody because it can't be done by me and staff alone. This thing is too big and the moment it becomes outsourced just to us, it loses its life. It's no longer the thing that it was made to be. Wherever you are in that journey of figuring out serving, it may be that waiting on tables doesn't feel like what you're made to do eventually. And Philip went on to do some things that were spectacular and incredible that didn't look like waiting on tables. But who knows what this preparation period looks like. I remember the first time I was invited to join a small group, being mentored by a pastor, and we would gather together every week. And every week he would say to me, Alex, make tea for everybody. Again, it doesn't really work in this culture, but in England, that's a big deal. That's like the servant's job. You go and you make the tea, and that every week was my task. And there were moments where I'm like, I feel God, you're calling me to do something else. Why am I doing this right now? Somewhere in that act of service, God was preparing me for what I was going to do. It didn't start here. It started somewhere else. I don't know what you are doing right now or how it feels, but I do know that you are made to do something. And there is so much to do. So while you are waiting, while you are unsure, I would suggest this piece of advice. While you're waiting, do what waiters do. While you're waiting, do what waiters do. They serve. They serve. I would love you to find whatever your place is in South. And I believe we'll be a richer community when we find that together. Let's pray. God, as we uh, wrestle with what a healthy community looks like, thank you for so many people that play so many different roles in South. Thank you that this isn't a church just built on paid people. And yet we, just like everyone else, will wrestle with, what do we, what do we outsource? What is there to do? What, what do we find paid people to, what roles do we find paid people for? What roles do we use volunteers for? There's so much in that. And there's so many people that give their time so generously to South so often. And I'm so thankful we are that type of community. And yet I know that in a community this size, there are those that are like... I kind of feel at this point, I'm a little bit sad on the sidelines. Maybe that's a short season where that's right, but ultimately I feel like, I believe, I see that you call us to serve. You call us to be involved. As we wrestle with what our individual role is, would you speak and give wisdom? Amen. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.